if you are new, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They're like this. And over here, you're going to get the verses we're going through today. On the bottom, you get a place to, or a middle place to write some notes. The bottom, you have four questions, same four questions every week during the series. And on the back, you get a short recap of what we will be talking about. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in that smart device. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Esther chapter 4, verse 16, and it says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us, as those in this room, to hear the leading of your Spirit, to know the places that you are calling us to step into as your people, that we would not be afraid to speak about who you are, to live our lives in ways that people see the goodness of you, and that you would be glorified by how we live, and living for you would teach us how to walk in that joy that you constantly provide us. Amen. Have a seat. So as I said, we're going through this series called Not So Little Women, different stories of women in the Bible, who they were, what they did, what they didn't do. Now, I just want to give you a preface as we start today is some of these stories are going to look odd. They are written from a cultural perspective that is two, 3,000 years old. And when you see something and read something in the Bible that looks sexist or misogynistic, you have to understand the Bible's not condoning those things. All of those things come about because we sinned, because we ran away from God. We thought we knew how to do life better on our own than God called us to. The same thing is true today. You look at all the craziness going on in our culture. It's people saying, I feel this way. I want this more than what God calls me to in my life. And every time we do that, we destroy God's intent. And the sad thing is, when we mess everything up, we tend to look at God and go, oh God, what are you doing? Why did you fail? Why did you mess this up? It's not God's fault. It's not like he's the problem. We are the problem. We are. And I start like this because we're going to hit our second week in the book of Esther. And we're going to look at the person of Esther. But she lives in a very male-dominated world where she has essentially no prospects in life unless a man gave that to her. And the Bible is not condoning this. It's pointing out what happens when we run from God. And so I don't want you to judge her for her decisions or also for me and how I try to explain this to you and what it looks like. This is not something that God created. It's what humankind's brought because of our sin and the fall. God's original intent we talked about the first week of this series is harmony and unity between us so we're not fighting one another. We are living lives that complement each other. Can we... There's my, my soapbox to start. We okay with that? Most of you. All right. All right. All right. After that scary intro, all right, Esther has something for everyone. I'll give you some background on the book. Uh, if you don't know, the book of Esther's got like suspense and sex and alcohol and women and bad guys and more bad guys and the good guys look like bad guys because we're all bad guys. It's got death and destruction and mayhem and intrigue and revenge and holidays and gallows and a hanging. Oh, all kinds of stuff, right? It's like, woo, I, I got to read this book. And it's nice and short, too. But anyway, the ultimate thing in the book is the providence of God. 
Since it was first written, the book of Esther has been controversial. Reactions to it are not neutral. They range from delight for the victory of the Jewish people over their enemies to violent dislike in the book because it appears to have this indefensible moral conduct of almost everybody in the book and God's name is not mentioned in the book at all. Now, some people have tried to discredit the book of Esther being it's not historical. But in spite of all these repeated attempts, the accuracy of the descriptions of the Persian court, the customs of the time, the precise dates, the Persian names, they all continue to withstand attacks and provides impressive evidence for the historical nature of this book. You have the character of Xerxes. If you have an ESV, it'll say Ahasuerus. It's the same name. Ahasuerus is Hebrew. Xerxes is Greek. That's the king, and what you read about him is consistent as what is known from, about him from secular historians like Herodotus and Aeschylus and Juvenal about his drinking parties, his extravagant gifts, and his irrational temper that would go from like zero to a hundred in two seconds. The events of the book of Esther are set in a place called Susa. Again, during the reign of Xerxes, king of Persia, his empire went from India to Ethiopia. Esther is the only Old Testament book where the entire narrative is set in Persia. The Jews at this time are living in what we call the diaspora. The diaspora simply means the dispersion, that they are dispersed around the known world. Now, how did this happen? Well, God's people, he kept telling them, follow me, love me, serve me, be my witness to the world. And his people are like, yeah, maybe not so much. Like they have their kingdom and they were once slaves and they started to build their kingdom on the back of slaves. And God said, this isn't right. And so God comes and he disciplines them. In 900 BC, the nation of Israel splits. There are 12 tribes that made up the nation. And so the 10 northern tribes split off and they become Israel. And the two southern tribes become Judah. Those northern 10 tribes, they never had one godly king, not one. And in 722, the Assyrians come in through God's discretion, and they just kind of wipe those northern 10 tribes off the map. It's not a surprise to God. God had been saying through his prophets for a century, this is what is going to happen. And then it happens. And then after that, what happens is 605 BC, the Babylonians come into those southern two tribes, and God It's not a surprise. God has said, this is what is going to happen. In 587 BC, the Babylonians finish their conquest, haul all of the people from Judah off to Babylon. And in 586, they destroy the Jewish temple. And as I told you a couple weeks ago, when we say the word Jew today, that actually comes from the word Judah, because that is where most of the Jews now today come from. That's why they're called Jews. Now, in the book of Esther, there are four major characters. There is Esther. There's Mordecai, it's a guy named Haman, who I will briefly mention like one sentence, and then there is the king, and yes, last week we did a whole message about this queen named Vashti, but she's not a major character. There are different views for the reason of the book. Some people say it's to explain Purim, which is this Jewish holiday. It's actually only one of two holidays not prescribed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The other one is Hanukkah. They say it's also maybe to tell the Jews that they're God's people, even while they were living in the diaspora. But I think it is to show the people, these Jewish people, that even though we forget God, God has never forgotten us. I think the entire book of Esther is to show God's providential care of his people.
Now, if you don't know what the word providence means, it is the foreseen care and guidance of God over the creatures of the earth. And again, Esther is very subtle because God's name is not mentioned in the book. But it's so pronounced that God's name is not mentioned that it draws your attention to it. It stands out. The book of Esther's failure to mention God is just glaring. Esther doesn't mention the law, doesn't mention the covenant, the temple, any of Israel's other characteristic institutions of their faith. And so why does it never mention God? Well, some people will say because God's not in it at all. And I don't think that's true. I think it is a powerful reminder that God's people will fail to consult Him. They will forget who He is. We will do things contrary to His will. Many times we will act just like everybody else in the world, trying to bring things about by ungodly means. And yet, God has still not forgiven, or forget, forgot us in those, in those places. And so we need to be a people who learn to trust God and take bold steps of faith to live as He calls us to live in the world. And far from not showing God, the book of Esther implicitly teaches the providential care of God for His people. Again, the book shows that even when God's people are far from Him, when they are disobedient, we are still the object of His concern and His love. If you have a Bible, open to Esther chapter 2. That is like the foundation for where we're going today. Esther chapter 2 is on page 262, if you're going to use one of the Bibles in Element. What we got to start is, who is this person named Esther? Who is she? Well, Esther 2, verse 2, starts like this. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Verse 4, And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So last week, if you weren't here, we started out looking at this queen named Vashti. She was a Babylonian, a Chaldean. Xerxes is all lit from a week of partying, and he wants her to come in front of him and his buddies naked, wearing only a crown so they can oogle her. She tried to be honorable to give him a way out from this, but he wasn't listening to any of it. And so Vashti finally just says no. Her honor is more important. And so Xerxes then deposes this queen when she stands against his tyranny. And now he wants another queen, and he will find that in Esther. So who is Esther? Esther is a beautiful, young Jewish girl that became pleasing to King Xerxes. That's who she was. And the interesting thing about Esther is how opposite she starts from Vashti, because Esther will sleep with Xerxes, and then he will find her pleasing to him. She will hide her Jewish identity. People sometimes will talk about, oh, the nobleness of Esther, but that's not how she started. It's not. When she starts, she is far more compliant than you saw Vashti last week. And as a result, Xerxes will make her his queen. And as again, I'm saying, you can't judge her really for that. She didn't really have any options. Most readers who don't try to make every person in the Bible into a hero to explain away all the dumb things that they do are typically offended by the early part of the book of Esther. Feminist, liberal interpreters are offended by Esther's subservience to these men. Uh, traditional religious people are offended by the fact that unlike Daniel, if you ever read the book of Daniel, Daniel stands up in Babylon and says, I'm a Jew, I'm going to pray three times a day, that's just what I'm going to do, throw me to the lions. Well, Esther keeps her nationality quiet. Again, she sleeps with the man she's not married to, breaks most of those mosaic laws, and through compromising herself, she rises into this elite space and becomes one of the few queens of the Persian Empire. But she didn't really have a whole lot of power in that place. And that means what Esther does is she shows so much that we can learn from her life. And the biggest one is that how we begin is not how we have to end. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But there's always redemption and there is always hope. 
So what happens? Well, sometimes in churches and some Sunday schools, they'll do, let's have a beauty pageant like the book of Esther. Oh, that, that is not what this, this is like. So I'm going to mingle a little bit together. So after, at the end of last week's message, there is this cabinet meeting where they strip the previous Queen Vashti of her crown for not debasing herself. And now they want, they say they need, they want a new queen. So you have these young men, these commissioners, they go out into every part of the empire to find the most beautiful women. And this is actually a little sick and disgusting because they're going out and they're rating everybody. Oh, you're a one, you're a five, you're a 2.8, you're a 8.4, yo, 10, you're coming back. And they're oogling all of these women trying to find the best to bring them back. They go through the whole empire. Some scholars think that as many as a thousand girls were brought in during this time to the king's harem. And so when Esther is brought in, her uncle knows that the Jews were looked down upon. So he says, keep your ethnicity quiet. Esther 2, verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And so these young women, well, they really didn't have a choice about being brought in unless they wanted to end like Vashti. But secondly, they never would have actually chosen probably a Jewish person from the outset. After the girls are taken in, they are then given what we call a year of beauty treatments, is what it says in the Bible. Various sorts of trainings from different people of how to get ready for one night with the king. There's actually this Christian movie called One Night with the King, and it kind of romanticizes this. This, this is not, not a great one night with the king because you go to the king after all of these things and only four things could be the result. Number one, he didn't like you. And that means he would send you back to be a permanent concubine, but he would never call you again. You were not allowed to go home. You're not allowed to get married. You were essentially banished somewhere between 14 and 18 years old to a life of permanent widowhood. The second thing that could happen is he might say, oh, I like this one a little bit. So she becomes a concubine. And that means he calls on you. If he ever remembers you or thinks about it, then you come to him when he feels like it. The third thing that can happen is you're really, really pleasing and you're one of the few women he will marry. But that doesn't mean you become a queen. That doesn't mean that. What it means is your children might become heirs if he allows it. And then the fourth thing is you're really, really pleasing and he favors you the most and he marries you and he calls you a queen. You become one of his queens, but you never, none of them ever get to go home. None of them. So Esther goes through the beauty treatments. We're not going to talk about that because it's kind of vulgar about how they train them what to do for their one night with the king. It's inappropriate for church, but she is favored more than all the rest. So she learned really well, and therefore the king marries her. He makes her his queen and throws another party because he likes to throw his parties. And what you see is the little orphan Jewish girl becomes one of the queens of the greatest empires on the face of the earth at the time. And we think, wow, a queen. She really had no power though. And this all goes to what we learn. So what do we learn is this. How we begin, as I said, is not how we have to end. How we begin is not how we have to end. And this is one of the things about Esther and the whole Bible that shows us as the world changes, things really don't change. I mean, it might look a little bit different, but it's really the same way. And I think we need to look at this in terms of our own lives because our world is a lot like King Xerxes. Our world says to us today, your external image is more important than your character. And we say, oh, I don't believe that. We have this difference between what I like to call ideals and values. Ideals are what we say we believe. Our values are what we actually do. And there's a lot of people out in the world today, including a lot of us in this room, who value style over substance. 
And we love to be thought of as having these great ideals, but how we live is totally opposite. I mean, we deny it. But, you know, Martin Luther King, when he said one day that the content of our character being more important than the color of our skin, we say yes, but we don't live that way. Our identity in front of our friends or those that we give power to in our lives mean more to us many times than what God says. What we have, our beauty, money, talent, power, connections, matters more to us usually than what we are. And we will compromise ourselves in many ways to be liked by those around us. We're all like how Esther started. We all undergo these cultural beauty treatments today to make our king, you know, whoever we hold in esteem, like us and take us into their embrace. And when you read this, you got to understand, this is not just for women. This is for men and women both. Our world says to you today, unless you get these credentials that we approve of, unless you get this kind of beauty, this kind of money, unless you get these things, you are worthless. Tim Keller once said that we are all concubines to the world system. And I think it's actually true because we sell ourselves out to the culture around us. But you also have to understand, many times we're a lot like King Xerxes because we also determine other people's worth on what they believe, on how they vote. I make a joke about COVID and half of you are like, ah, the split the room. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, do you believe what I believe about this? Our beauty, our money, our power, our talent. It's how we tend to make relationships. And we can't say, no, not me, because in one sense, we all do it because that's kind of the point of what happens to Esther. It's easy to see people in our world obsessed with physical beauty or power or privilege or fame or celebrity, but the rest of us are as well. We become infected and affected by our culture. And this is why Esther holds up a mirror to our lives and shows us how we are, how easily we become drawn away from who Christ calls us to be in our life. Those first couple chapters of Esther, she is a completely compliant Barbie doll sex toy. That's what she is. She does everything the men want her to do that society says she should do. But there's an encouragement. Because even in that pressure cooker, Esther begins to change. And that's amazing. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, are we guilty of this? Like Keller says, in what what ways are we guilty of being concubines to the world system? What beauty treatments have we undergone that have changed our mind from actually following Christ to saying, yeah, that doesn't matter anymore. I believe this instead. Oh, what God wants is out of date. This, This is what I want. What beauty treatments have we gone under? Do you ever feel today sometimes like your soul is just exhausted? from trying to you know, meet up to all these different standards. You're looking for love and approval, maybe for one night with the king. You know, your big chance, all the while believing this Christian stuff sometimes. And I say it like that because I was listening to this interview with Jimmy Kimmel, and he says, I'm a Christian. And he says, I believe that Christian stuff sometimes. And I'm like, ah, well, that's not a, how you do it. Um, so what you understand is Esther got off to a horrible start. You know, who knows how Jimmy Kimmel's going to end, right? But Esther gets off to a horrible start. But by the end, God works in her. He does a work in her, and he stays with her even when she forgot him. God is patient with her. He's going to grow her into a woman of maturity. And that's important because no matter how much we have all messed up the chapters of our lives so far, God writes what comes next. And the Bible's message is not that God blesses those who live these morally exemplary lives. It's that God is there and he's persistently and continuously giving grace to his people who don't ask for it, who certainly don't deserve it. And when we do get it, we don't fully appreciate it. The point here is that God has not given up on us. The second thing is this coming out of that understanding is we're to trust God 
in the world by living for him and his glory in whatever place, and here I'm going to say palace, because that's where she was, in whatever palace he has put us in. What you'll eventually see happen in the book of Esther, if you read it, is there is this plot by this guy named Haman. Haman's great-granddaddy was beat up by this guy named Mordecai's granddaddy, and so he's mad at because the guy that beat up Haman's granddaddy was, was a Jewish person, so he's like, oh, i got to get rid of the Jews. And he hatches this plot to destroy all of the Jews. And Esther ends up being in a place to do something about it. The woman that has never done anything but what she's been told. And this is what I want to say. There's a danger, I think, for us and not recognizing our position or not stepping into it. I mean, the story reminds us that most of us would really rather be comfortable and not truly stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ in real ways. Mordecai, her uncle, who told Esther to be quiet about her Jewishness at one point, now he's like, hey, we're going to die. Don't be quiet anymore. I want you to stand up and I want you to be able to say something now. And so she eventually does. But before she does, there's all these things that she talks about of being like, you know, it's, this is not great. I don't know if I can actually step in there and do that. In Esther 4, she says, I can't go to the king unbidden. That is a capital offense. I can die because of that. She says, I'm really, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be vulgar, but she goes, I am really only here for sex. I don't have any power. If you read between the lines, she says, I got here because that last queen was too bold. And you're asking me to throw everything away. She will even say, I have not gone to the king for 30 days. And the king doesn't sleep alone. And if you have not been with the king for 30 days, you might be out of favor. And she says to Mordecai, you don't know what you're asking of me. I could lose everything. And Mordecai says, of course I know what I'm asking of you. Esther 4.14, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What he tells her is, if you risk, you might lose everything. But if you don't risk, you are going to lose everything. And her heart begins to change. Esther 4.16, then she says, Go, gather the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And what you see is Esther is now starting to come back to her Jewish roots, to seeing who God is, remembering who he is. And as I mentioned, in Esther, God's name is so absent that it is striking not to notice. The writer has to deliberately avoid mentioning God's name here because she's going to go fast with all of her young women. What do you do when you fast? You pray. Who are you praying to? Yes! Yes, Mordecai, he goes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and Jews who put on sackcloth and ashes are praying to who? To the God of Israel. That's who they're praying to. But the author of the book just moves around any mention of that, and that's not an oversight. That is a deliberate literary device to make a point that the Jewish people are in danger, though they have forgotten God, God has never forgotten them. In a lot of places in the Bible, when a miracle is needed, like here, God shows up, He parts the sea, sets this on fire. But here, there is no miracle. There's no, there's no vision. There's no dream. There's this whole string of coincidences where Esther ends up in this place of being a queen. And oh, how convenient was that one after another? You know what we call that? Providence! It's <laughs> where we started. Providence, that's what we call it. One person says it like this. When you see one of the ten plagues, you know that's God. But when Xerxes gets drunk at a party and starts bragging, you don't say, wow, there's God at work. But he is, because God works through our sin and our disobedience to bring about all of his purposes. Karen Jobes writes about this, and she says that in her life, 
Esther taught her what it means to live this real Christian life. She says she's so obsessed with trying to find God's will. It's this little dot. Where is it? I got to figure it out. I'm going to miss it. So she's looking for signs and she's very fearful. She says, then I read the book of Esther. She goes and says, I looked at the book. Everything changes. Uh, she writes this, when God works in extraordinary ways, we know. When he's working in ordinary ways, we think he's not there, but he is. He is. And she means that God's absence in our lives, when we think it is, it's never real absence. That his silence is never real silence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. That God really works more through us to the normal, average, every day. And today in our world, people say, where is God? Job's writes, he is working even now for your salvation and working out his promises. And more importantly, he is keeping his promises. Job's points out that in the middle of all of our insecurity, God is always there. She says, it's always inappropriate to be mad at God because we think he's not working in our life. See, the point of Esther is not that you and your buddies need to go out tonight and get lit and bring about the will of God. What I'm saying is that God is never absent when people think he is. God is never absent even when people act like he is absent. He works all things to his glory and our eventual good, which is to his glory. And I want us to see Esther and really all the Bible, that God intends to use all of us for his work in the world, not just preachers and missionaries, but people in all of our public and cultural institutions. I think one of the things, the most foundational things the scriptures teach us is that our relationship with God is broken by our own choice. We have run from him. We've set ourselves in his place. How do we become restored? Well, that's the good news of what we call the gospel. Jesus comes. He lives the life that we should have lived. He imputes. He gives gives that righteousness to us as a gift. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He gives us his life. That's the beauty. The world is brought back together and healed by saying, this is what God has done to bring you to himself. The world needs to be healed because our relationships with one another, they are broken. And this is why there's racism and war and violence and oppression and misogyny and sexism and disease, hunger and death. When you look at the very end of the book of Revelation, you see God's goal for his people is not just restored relationship with him, though it is, but also that the world is healed, that our relationships become healed. And how does that happen? That happens with every single person, gardeners, farmers, bankers, artists, and esters, every single person. Dick Lucas once said that if you bought a book with the title, The Person God Uses, most people would think, oh, that's a book about a pastor or a missionary or something like that. He goes, no, it's a story about all of us because all of us are the people that God uses us where we are. And Lucas says it's probably easier for someone, say, like me, like a preacher, to talk the way I do because I'm expected to say the words I do, right? Here's the 10 steps to make you happy. No, I tell you about Jesus every single week. But Esther's not expected to do that. What was Esther expected to do? Stay silent. That's what she was expected to do. And again, it's easier in a sense to know what I should be doing. I think it's harder for a lot of you. Maybe you're a lawyer or you're in medicine or business or arts or whatever. It's a lot harder sometimes to understand your call. And that's why Esther is good. Because Esther is not in a congregation like this. Esther is not out on the streets. Esther is in a royal court kind of almost stuck there and she can't do anything else, but she still works to bring about God's grace and His mercy and His hope and His justice there. God uses all of us no matter where we are. And I think what we need to do and see in the book of Esther is we need to open our eyes and to see where we are. It is important for believers everywhere because you are living in a palace metaphorically. Maybe your palace is a box. I don't know, but you're living in a palace metaphorically. Wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play, that's our palace. And so what are we doing 
to be willing to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ into that place to save lives. Because there are people inside your palace who need you to speak the gospel to help bring this restoration. This is, you know, why God says to his people in the book of Isaiah, and, he, and Tim Keller says, he goes, we, know, we don't use the city, we serve the city. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And Esther shows us, while we may have been a people who have failed miserably at this for years, we can start even today using our connections, our clout, you know, whatever that is to bring God's grace wherever we are. And you might say, but I don't have that much clout. I don't have that many connections. Esther didn't either. Esther had almost no power whatsoever when she decides to stand up. And so we should see our workplaces and our schools and our friends as a way to further the gospel, not using people. You don't get into friendships just to use those friendships. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to guilt you. I want you to see the great joy that God has placed in your life by putting you where you are. I do not want you to overreact and try and pigeonhole Jesus into every conversation. Like a coworker is like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. You go, oh, have you heard about Jesus? He'll flush your sins away. I mean, don't. Don't, because it's weird. That's just weird and obnoxious. And all it means is you're getting your identity from how much you talk about Jesus. What I'm saying is we can use all that we have to serve God wherever we are. We can work for healing and restoration by our lives and our words. And I think unless we see our lives that way, we will end up being in a prison like Esther was until she understood that God is bigger than this palace. God is bigger than my life right here. We must understand that we are created by God. God has given us everything that we have and we owe Him everything. Our problem many times today is that we live as if everything is ours and we see fit to use them just for ourselves, our own interests, our own happiness. And so we go about violating our relationship with God. So what did Esther do? Let me wrap this up for you really quick. Um, I have this guy in our gospel community, and he says, what's the light bulb moment? I thought I gave you two, okay? How you begin, now you have, how you have to end, and whatever palace you're in, use that. But here, here's my light bulb moment for you, okay? Esther saved her people by two things, by identification and mediation. That's how she saves them. She identified with her people. If I perish, I perish. I am Jewish. I will stand with my people. And because she identified, she can mediate. What she does is she goes before the throne of the king, the throne of power. And what the king does is receives her with favor. And then she talks about this plot against her people. And all of a sudden, that favor that was imputed to her because the king liked her will then be given to her people and all of her people will be saved. Now, hopefully you see this coming. Esther points to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, has the ultimate beauty, the ultimate glory. He leaves it to save us. Philippians 2 says he has equality with the Father, but emptied himself and identified with us and took on our condemnation. He didn't do that at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. He goes to the cross, and there he died for our sins. So he identifies. He dies for our sins, and when he does, that's him now mediating. He stands before the throne of the universe and all the favor that he has procured is now ours. When we trust him, it is ours. See, I'm not telling you today, oh, you'll be an Esther. What I'm saying to you is see Jesus as your savior, not as him doing this example for everybody else, but what he actually did for you. And when you understand what he did for you as your savior, that will begin to change you and your identity. Our security, our value will come from what he did. Then we'll live differently in the world. Guys, whatever our high place is, our palace, we will start to use it for the kingdom of God because we understand the great grace that we have been given. 
Everything we have was never ours to begin with. It has always been His. Our standing before God comes because of Jesus. And so often in our lives, what we do is we listen to all the other voices that are around us, all the other voices that try and pull us away from seeing what God has actually done to bring us to Himself in Christ. And we must be a people who go back to the understanding of the good news of the gospel, God's great grace given to us. That is what changes us. And I think you see the beginnings of the beauty of this in Esther, how she comes to that place and starts to trust that, you know, God is with her. Even if she perishes, she perishes. But I will trust now because he has led me to this place for this. I feel powerless, but God, through his grace and his mercy, will hopefully step in, change the heart of the king, and give me a little bit of power. And God did. God did this amazing work. But it didn't come from saying, look how good I am. It came from a place of saying, okay, I'm going to trust. And if I perish, I perish. Guys, we are a people who understand that uh, our running from God has led us to a place that we have essentially perished. We have broken our relationship with God. But God has come to us in the person of Christ to restore us to himself. That is where identity comes from. And when we understand that's where identity comes from, that gives us great strength to be able to live in this world with Christ as our foundation, our foundation. So when you come to communion, that's the reminder of it. You break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of His blood that was shed for you and me, that we can be brought in again. All that Christ, all the standing before God the Father is imputed to us. It's given to us because of what He has done. That is the result of what the gospel brings into our lives. We can live solid. We can live secure because God is good. And you might be in some place in your life where it's like, I, I don't see how God's power can come and rescue me in this spot where I am. But it can, and He does, wherever you are. If you need prayer, right across the way in the lounge, some people that, who are there to pray with you. You can go during music. You can go after service. But we love to pray with you. Maybe you are just feel like powerless, like Esther. You have no connections. You feel like God is absent, even though that God has never left you, but you want someone to pray with you through that so you would understand better how God is moving and maybe working in your life. We would love to pray with you about that. There's offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God has been so good to us. So we give generously. We do not pass a plate at Element. It's always meant to be a response to what God has done. And I encourage you to look at those four questions that are on those sermon notes. Just kind of walk through that. You know, what, what is God right now even speaking to you in the midst of looking at Esther's life? What we can learn from who she was and how she started and even stepped into these places of grace and strength in the midst of a culture that tried to hold her in a place that she, quite frankly, in the end, kind of steps out of and trusts God to move beyond that. How can we be those? who honor and serve Christ where we are in our palaces and in our places every single day. I think this is what we learn from Esther, that we all have a palace. Again, you may say, mine looks like a box. It may, but still our palace. Let's trust God wherever He has placed us to speak of the beauty and the healing and the grace of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand first and foremost what the good news of the gospel is, your rescue and salvation of us. That you have brought us to yourself. And in understanding 
all that has been given to us in you, that's standing before the Father, that we are now seen as righteous, as holy as you, I ask that in seeing that, we would begin to step into that strength that we have because we know our foundation is not us. It's not what we do. It is based upon what you have done. So teach us to trust you in what you have done. To see the places in our lives, the the palaces, the neighbors, the workplaces, the friends, the family that you have placed us into. Have us see those as places that we are being sent and that we would be your witnesses to bring your grace and mercy there. We would want to see and people know what we have known, the goodness of a rescue and a salvation. Teach us to live that out in front of others. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. We'll close the rest of the curtains now. I thought the first one. <laughs> you know, Thanksgiving this week, right? You know, this, this holiday. And there is so much to be thankful for. There really is. Even if you're in a spot today where you feel like there's not. I think you can be thankful that God has loved you exactly where you are. That he has called you to himself. That his grace towards you, it is not set upon your merit, but upon his mercy. And maybe as we step into these songs this morning, that, that would be the place you look. How, how can you, as like an Esther, step into maybe your families this week, or maybe you don't have families that are around, but maybe friendships, or maybe you don't have a lot of friends, but where in the relationships that are around you, you can step into those this week being able to bring about the mercy of God, showing the grace that He has first given you and that we can be representatives of not only His holiness, but of His loving kindness and mercy to those in our lives. Let's live as a joyful, thankful people, understanding that God has placed us where we are for the times that we are as well by His providential care. And we should live to his glory and his grace wherever we are.